Culture of Death, Part 2. In recent decades, we have seen a preponderance of legal protections for various forms of killing. Many Western states are legalizing euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, already legal in Canada and several parts of Europe. This attack on life in general, that began with the abolition of laws against abortion, is escalating. Some years back, I read an article on the UK's socialized medicine system, the National Health Service, on the case of a doctor who has blown the whistle on the NHS allegedly euthanizing 130,000 elderly patients every year because, quote, they are difficult to manage or to free up beds. It is worth noting at this point that these overt attacks on life are essentially a modern form of eugenics. Hitler's sterilization laws and eugenics programs were modeled in the United States by the work and legislative preparation of American evolutionary biologist Dr. Harry Laughlin. Eugenics, which is the attempt to control and guide a supposed evolutionary process by controlling who reproduces and who is born, is very much back with us in modified forms. The founder of the modern pro-abortion and birth control movement and the Planned Parenthood organization was the racist eugenicist Margaret Sanger. Sanger was a white supremacist who once addressed a meeting of the Ku Klux Klan. She argued that the brains of Australian Aborigines, and I quote, were only one step more evolved than chimpanzees and just under blacks, Jews, and Italians. Her early clinics were initially targeted and located to control the births of Slavs, Latins, and Jews. She later targeted African-American communities. The greatest tragedy in all this evil is that abortion legalizes murder in the life of the family, so that the cradle of life is turned into a place of death. In the United States, abortion has now taken far more lives than all the wars in US history, which from 1775 through 1975 counted over 1.2 million deaths. For the same period, deaths known by abortions are around 8 million. There is something profoundly malevolent in all this wanton killing, a love of death that is basic to sinful man's spiritual condition. This orientation toward death, the Bible tells us, marks men and cultures in rebellion against God. That is, by their hostility to God, they become suicidal in their inclinations. Scripture tells us there is an inescapable link between sin and death. Spiritual separation from the source of life in Jesus Christ means a growing tendency toward death because Christ alone is the resurrection and the life. Christ's atonement and lordship in our lives separates us from the power of sin and death, consecrating us to life and righteousness. For in Christ, the power of death is broken. Now in the pagan Greco-Roman world into which this gospel was first declared, the great love in entertainment was death, paraded as sport 
at the circus, where the gladiators were fighting to the death or Christians were being tossed to lions, death was a spectator sport. As the gladiators entered the arena, they cried, Hail Caesar, we who are about to die salute you. The Christian faith eventually brought an end to the bloodletting of the arena. Spiritual evil and wickedness, advanced by an anti-biblical worldview, is clearly at work again in the destruction of the life of the most helpless and innocent of all human beings. Not unlike the ancient Roman world or the ideals of the Greek philosophers, morality today is being redefined in terms of whatever a statist elite says it is. Life has value and is worth living when the state says it is. The state again has become the ultimate order and so abortion is consequently seen as simply a matter of politics, not God's law. The promotion of abortion is then at root a return to paganism and to a fundamental denial of the truth of Psalm 139 that we've been considering. In this psalm, the total governance and predestinating purpose of God is asserted. That is, his plans and his purposes. Today, in this retrogressive turn, the control of life by human agencies is the alternate plan of predestination of man by man. If we deny predestinating power to God in our thinking, we simply transfer that power to man and the state. Whenever belief in God's predestination declines, planning or predestination by the state over life and death rapidly takes its place. Abortion is thus an attempt to play God, and when man plays God, he attempts to control life, to grant and take life on his lawless terms. It is ironic that modern humanism is against capital punishment for murderers, where God requires it, but will exercise capital punishment against innocent unborn children whom God's law protects. If a man can play God and write his own law, questions of life and death become open questions to be decided by the democratic will, embodied by the state planners and legislatures. Under God, the ministry of the doctor is meant to be a ministry of life and healing. Under humanistic man-gods, doctors are increasingly being asked to become murderers. All this is done behind the blasphemous claim that humanism reverences and affirms life. But human worth, dignity and life are no longer affirmed or protected on the grounds that all human beings bear God's image. Rather, the weak are murdered by the strong in the name of another's human rights to choose. In an age dominated by men of blood, where God's name is hated and blasphemed, judgment certainly looms, as the psalmist warns. It is very important to notice that in this psalm, following powerful and moving statements about the all-conditioning providence of God from conception to the grave, we read David calling on God to judge the wicked. 
King David hands his life over to God as one formed for the purpose of doing battle against wickedness. These wicked men of blood come under the censure of God and David for their lawlessness. These lawless deeds include murder, a violation of the sixth commandment, and blasphemy, a violation of the third commandment. Verse 20 of Psalm 139 makes clear there is premeditation, planning, and forethought involved in their scheming against God. These murderers use the name of God as though he were on their side as an accomplice. Apostate churchmen are involved in blasphemy whenever they endorse or support what God condemns. So, for the United Church of Canada, for example, to invoke God in support of abortion and euthanasia must therefore be understood as nothing but manifest blasphemy. In difficult verses too often passed over by Christians in a consideration of Psalm 139, David declares his hatred of those who hate God by their murderous lawlessness. This reflects God's own attitude toward the wicked as seen in Psalm 5 verses 4 through 6. Their scripture says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. End quote. Thus, David declares that he loathes those who rise up against God in this way. To hate or loathe here means a real abhorrence of those who purposefully plan against and rise up against God. John Calvin noted of this psalm, quote, Our attachment to godliness must be inwardly defective if it does not generate an abhorrence of sin. At this point, it is important that we do not read into this text a malevolent or vindictive self-centered motive or merely emotional understanding of David's divinely inspired words. He is pointing out that there is a real spiritual battle between truth and falsehood, God and Satan, light and darkness, in which life and death are very literally at stake. In this conflict, there is no middle ground, no irenic third way. Grammatically, the term hate here means the strongest possible aversion to lawless works and the people who delight in them. According to the scriptures, love is the fulfillment of the law. Therefore, lawlessness must be a horror to us, or we cannot be a people of love. In this sense, then, to hate the wicked, and not just lawlessness in the abstract, is an aspect of love to God because love fears God and obeys his law. We are, of course, to love our enemies, not as a warm emotional connection, which is psychologically impossible, but by obeying God's laws concerning them, including the command to make known the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling them to repentance. However, 
Scripture requires that we maintain an abhorrence of evil and the strongest possible disapproval of those who hate and blaspheme God in their murderous ways. To be delighted in or approve of such people and their works is to participate in their evil. In Luke 14, 26, our Lord said that if a person does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Obviously, by this, he did not mean we are to cultivate an emotion of hatred for our family. Rather, Jesus taught us that if anything comes before God in our lives, even familial relationships, it is a form of idolatry. If God is not first and foremost, and obedience to him not paramount, he is in fact loved less than our own natural family, and we show that we prefer our own way and own life to true worship and God's path of life. In a similar way, to fail to have the strongest possible aversion to the evil man in terms of God's law is to put sentimentality before what God requires, which is likewise a form of idolatry. Now, the reason we tend to find passages of scripture like this difficult is because many believers have unwittingly adopted the Aristotelian and humanistic division between intention and action, thereby depersonalizing sin by abstracting a man's actions from his true moral nature. Because life and history undeniably manifest real evil, only by resorting to pagan dualistic assumptions between idea or intent on the spiritual side and act on the side of the material, can humanistic thinking retain the notion of a natural goodness or moral neutrality within man over against the biblical doctrine of a fallen and sinful nature in all human beings revealed by their deeds. On the pagan view, as we see in Gnosticism, the spirit or mind can remain pure whilst the material environment is evil. This being the case, many pagans thought that what you do in the body does not define your true moral character. As a typical example of this thinking today, people may say of a criminal, yes, he is a murderer or rapist or pornographer or paedophile, but in his heart, he's a good boy with good intentions. Such an artificial division of moral character from action seeks to preserve an anti-biblical view of man. It results in a denial of real responsibility whereby intent or character and act are divorced rather than being seen as involved in each other. Works of evil can then be seen not as an expression of man's sinful and lawless heart, but as a form of strange social sickness produced by the person's environment, their upbringing, or lack of education. The scriptures make clear, however, that sin does not have abstract, objective existence. Rather, sin is lawlessness, and therefore is a moral quality of a man. Sin is something we think and do. 
Murder and adultery are not things that have an existence apart from man. Crimes do not happen without a criminal. There is no sin without a sinner. Sin is not an idea of being, but an expression of a sinful and immoral nature. Murder is evil, and so murderers are evil, since men do not murder out of the goodness of their hearts. Jesus made clear that a good tree does not bring forth bad fruit and vice versa. By their fruit, you will know them. Now, sin does and can manifest itself in thoughts, words, and deeds, in historical events and their results. But it does not then gain independent metaphysical being. This would require the view that evil has a metaphysical ultimacy alongside God. This is why it is not seen in the abstract merely as a category or idea that the psalmist says we are to hate. We are also to have an established moral aversion of the strongest kind to evil men. We are, of course, all sinners. Yet mercifully, sin can be forgiven by and through the atoning death of Jesus Christ when we come to him in true repentance and faith. This includes the sin of abortion. Scripture is clear that because of man's sinful nature, all have sinned and come short of God's righteous standard. Some of God's greatest servants were guilty of murder and adultery, including the author of this great Psalm 139, and yet they found grace and renewal. Thus, King David does not condemn evil in this psalm out of a sense of self-righteous superiority. In fact, in verses 23 through 24, he prays, Search me, O God. This is to be our starting point as believers. Search me first, Lord, not others. We must ask God to try us and know our thoughts in his intimate omniscience. And like David, in such cases, we should be quickly aware that our own integrity, such as it is, is not enough. We can only stand in Christ's righteousness. We must all be tried and searched by God, and we all have need of him to lay his hand of covenant faithfulness upon us to guard, guide, discipline, and preserve us. This is why David prays in verse 24, see if there is any grievous, wicked, offensive, lawless way in me. And then, lead me in the everlasting way. What is that way? It is the way in which we pray God's right hand to hold us fast. It is the way of Christ, the way of obedience, the way of righteousness and justice, the way of the kingdom of God. It is the only way in which we can walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the path that leads to life. This is the everlasting way. Let us be sure that we are on it.